Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It is certainly great to be back on the air with you guys. And I know many of you are wondering, uh, when in the world was Kirk going to even get back on the air after um, leading off with the uh, prologue to our new uh, book topic uh, podcast series that we've um, begun, uh, being that of uh, Nathan Hale, The Life and Death of America's uh, First Spy by M. William uh, Phelps. I will say this, um, I've had a lot of things going on, but all good, uh, nothing bad. Um, As I've said before, and I'll say it again, you know, life does not always revolve around one thing, even if it's a hobby that um, we enjoy doing as individuals. Yes, I enjoy podcasting, but I can't make it my life. Uh, But the good news is that uh, during the time that I was away, um, being about... Let's see, I was on the air last, uh, hard to believe, uh, one week and uh, two days ago, which would have been the 10th. So a lot of things have been going on. Uh, My wife and I were on assignment recently. We went to uh, Williamsburg, one of our uh, favorite places to visit um, nearby. Uh, We were there from uh, this past Thursday um, through Sunday morning. Got to see the Grand Illumination uh, take place. And for those of you who who haven't been to the Grand Illumination, it's very well worth doing. Um, prior to the pandemic, it was just really a um, a one-day thing at the very start of December. And uh, since the pandemic or post-pandemic, they have been um, doing it um, three weekends in December. So it, for some reason, if you aren't able to make the first uh, weekend, you've got the second and third weekend to watch um, the fireworks uh, festivities. It is uh, very well worth uh, doing if you haven't uh, done it before. And of course, we um, learned uh, learned some new things that we didn't know before, which is always a good thing because uh, I do give the uh, Colonial Williamsburg Foundation all the credit in the world for um, constantly um, revitalizing programs, uh, for constantly um, educating the public on how uh, life uh, was like in the 18th century. It wasn't always about attending uh, ballroom dances or it wasn't about, you know, yes, there were taverns there, uh, at least 15, but it was more than just one setting. Let's just put it that way. But I do give the foundation all the credit in the world for constantly uh, revamping their programs and uh, allowing those whom play uh, characters from Patrick Henry to Robert Carter Carter III to Martha Washington, young George Washington, and older George Washington, I give the foundation all the credit in the world for allowing those individuals to to study their characters. I mean, there's a handful of uh, men and women whom portray um, characters of their time, and they all have a unique story to tell. And yes, you may think after the first go-round seeing these people speak up close that you've learned everything there is to learn about them. But when you hear them speak again and again, it's like, wow, we are learning more about their lives. And we should be reminded that I have to remind myself that while, yes, there are times throughout history where history itself has not always been pretty, I should have to remind myself uh, many of times where even um, when our forefathers were growing up, they lived through some very uh, challenging times themselves. 
So I think it's fair to say that nobody throughout the uh, history of mankind has really ever been exempt from um, from uh, challenging moments in time. I mean, we live in challenging times today, um, which is, I guess on one hand, maybe it's a good thing. On the other, it's probably a not so good thing. But, um, but we should be reminded of the fact that even our forefathers lived through... Um, through some uh, turbulent moments and uh, they lived through some times where um, they perhaps sought resolution, wanted some form of resolution to take place. Maybe they didn't get the entire uh, full package of resolution that they were hoping for, but you know, whatever resolution they got, they were able to be thankful for it. Um, but uh, I do know that, um, that it, like I said earlier, it is great to be back on the air with you guys. I did miss you all, and if there's another set of good news I can give to you all is that I want to thank all of you for continuously listening to uh, podcasts from past uh, book topic uh, segment episodes. I know for some of you whom I encountered in Williamsburg in terms of working for the foundation, um, you know, I, I did give you all uh, podcast cards of mine, and I'm not saying this to flaunt by no means I'm not doing that, but by doing this, it is my way of being able to constantly uh, spread the word so that others can learn from not only uh, the works that I have done, but be able to share it with other people um, whom not only work, say, for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, but for other important uh, historical foundations that are uh, constantly reinventing themselves in terms of how they can uh, teach the greater American public about um history because, um, you know, I don't want to get political and all that, but I do have to remind myself that um, schools do not teach history uh, like they used to. And if uh, young people don't learn their history, um, then that's not a good thing. And yes, history is not always pretty, but we do need to learn as much of it as possible so that we don't make the same mistakes again that happened in the past, regardless of um, the time or the era or even century, let alone in which uh, a particular event did take place that was that um, may not have fared better for um, for the greater uh, good of society. So, I think it's time we get the show on the road with our next uh, podcast segment episode to the book topic uh, series that we're doing on uh, Nathan Hale, The Life and Death of America's First Spy. In this uh, episode, we're going to learn about um, what journey uh, young Nathan Hale takes along with his brother and where they go come the fall of 1769. We are also going to learn... uh, we will also learn a, a little bit about Nathan Hale's um, family um, history in terms of ancestry. And believe me, we're not going to get into anything um, <laughs> on the grounds of ancestry DNA. I'm not, um, I'm not uh, how do you call it, downplaying that. But I do think it is important that we learn a little bit about uh, family background in terms of history because uh, that does say, it does say a lot in terms of whom you're related to and uh, the connections, etc., And uh, we will also learn um, as to what year Nathan Hale was born, uh, given that um, around the time that he was born, um, that um, has a lot to um, say onto itself. Uh, We will also learn um, about hardships that um, 
Nathan Hale endured at a young age. After all, it is fair to say that even those whom grew up in the 18th century were not immune to, um, or I should say, they were not exempt from hardships. I mean, none of us should be exempt from hardships, even in today's advanced uh, technological world. Uh, I'm not saying that in the 18th century that technology was not sophisticated, but let's just put it this way. It didn't change rapidly like it does today. So I think it's fair to say that we better get the show on the road while we have time and be prepared for our first leadoff question to this um, to the um, to this uh, podcast uh, topic um, segment episode. What was uh, unique come the fall of 1769 for 14 year old Nathan Hale, including his 15 year old brother Enoch? Both boys, or rather young men, I should say, embarked on a 60 mile journey to New Haven, where their ultimate destination would be none other than Yale College. Now, we have to remember, folks, yes, in today's time, uh, Yale is referred to as Yale University, but in Nathan Hale's time, it was referred to as Yale College, and I do remember um, talking to you all from the uh, previous podcast uh, when uh, I was had done the uh, prologue about how from 1718 to 1887, almost 170 years, that uh, Yale University, folks, was, well... It was known as Yale College for nearly 170 years. It wasn't until the very end of the um, 19th century that it uh, changed from Yale College to uh, Yale University. So that is something that's um, easy for us to uh, overlook and forget um, sometimes. But a 60-mile journey, I don't believe that that is a journey that would be able to uh, take place in one night. Um, we do have to be reminded, folks, that in 18th century times, that you you pretty much have two choices of transportation. Uh, number one is going to be by horse and buggy to get from point A to point B. The other one would be by ferry. Now, in colonial times, you were lucky enough, if everything went well, the weather was smooth, that your horse and buggy could get you from point A to point B, maybe in 20 miles. So we do have to be reminded that um, given where, and I'll tell you all here in a bit where Nathan Hale um, hailed from, that, you know, if you got somewhere, um, how should I say it, if you went from point A to point B and, and you did 15 to 20 miles, I mean, you were really moving up in the right direction. I mean, that was significant progress for its time in the 18th century. If you did 30 miles in one day, that to me would have been beyond accomplishment. But we do have to be reminded, folks, that people are stopping a lot because they're visiting, not only just, say, with extended family relatives, they could be visiting friends that live in the town next over, whom they may be lucky enough to see once or twice a year, depending on the circumstances. And plus two, you know, your horses, you know, horse and buggy, uh, the horses need a rest. So if they need a rest, you would too. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to a tavern. Taverns not only have to provide the lodging for you, the individual, or for individuals, they need to provide um, stables for the horses as well. So, um, so we just need to be reminded that, yes, you know, when we think of 60 miles in today's time, yeah, we can get there in one day, but not in the 18th century. 
depending on just how good your transportation was and with regards to whatever weather you might have been dealing with, if you were going by horse and buggy and it was 60 miles from point A to point B, you might be lucky to do it in three days. If the weather cooperated, you could get 20 miles in per each day. So 60-mile journey, um, to me, that must have been quite a journey, to say the least. For both brothers, this journey marked the first time they had left well beyond the confines of home other than making special trips into Hartford, uh, Norwich, or Wyndham to obtain supplies for their father. Well, you know, if I think we also should be reminded, too, that if you did travel out of town, that was a big deal because not everybody traveled 30 miles all the time. Even if you went just 10 miles from point A to point B, that was a big deal, especially if it was the next town over. But to be able to travel extensively, that meant that could to me could have meant that you had a um, high end status position or perhaps you were someone of high status because, you know, think about it. Not everybody is going to be able to have the luxury of going uh, to a destination that's 60 miles away. I mean, what reason do you have? You may have a reason, but not everybody has the luxury. Well, um, Richard Hale is Nathan and Enoch's father. And Richard Hale, folks, is someone whom is very religious. He, um, his faith is very strong. And we do have to be reminded of the fact that in uh, 18th century times, and even before then, that religion was a very... Um, key um, instrumental um, aspect of, of the community. And in, depending on where you lived, uh, there some communities you had more than one church. Other communities you may have had just one church. And when I think of communities that had just one church, I think of uh, Jamestown and Williamsburg. Jamestown being the first capital of Virginia, then you know Jamestown relocates to what we know it was originally known as Middle Plantation, and it becomes uh, Williamsburg in 1699. There's only one church. That is the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church. So, you know, we should be reminded that while, yes, church was a um, vital staple in um, colonial times, not every community had the luxury of uh, multiple churches catering to multiple um, religious faiths. So yes, uh, Richard Hale, as I mentioned, he's a very religious man. He firmly believes, or firmly believed, I should say, that whatever happened in life, God's plan for his children would never waver. So even if times got tough, Richard Hale wanted to instill a strong vision for his children and letting them know that even when times got tough, God was still on their side. And I think we should still even interpret that in today's modern uh, world. For Nathan and Enoch Hale, um, to be able to go to Yale in their time was, um, it was not something that should have been taken lightly. And I'm sure some of you are, especially you young people who are listening, if you're wondering how in the world did these boys get into Yale? And, you know, there was no such thing as SAT testing or um, ACT tests. So, I'm sure some of you are probably wondering how in the world were they able to make it into Yale? 
Well, they were tutored by a fellow named Dr. Joseph Huntington, whom helped prepare both boys for Yale. It very well could be that uh, Dr. Huntington spent a majority of his time with these boys, and he probably watched them grow up. Well, it just so happens, folks, that Dr. Huntington is more than just a tutor. He is a well-regarded minister and scholar within the community of Coventry. Coventry is the community, folks, where Nathan Hale and his siblings are born. And if any of you are wondering exactly where Coventry is, if you um, look at it on a map, it's on the outskirts of uh, Hartford in western Connecticut. Uh, Hartford is just south of the uh, Massachusetts, um, south of the Connecticut-Massachusetts line, I should say. And if you're looking for a city in, in far western Massachusetts that would um, be near Hartford, and the only reason I know it is because of my work in transportation, uh, it's called uh, Chicopee, Massachusetts, which is near uh, Hartford, uh, not too far from the uh, Massachusetts-Connecticut line. So, um, so yes, uh, Dr. Huntington is not only um, a successful tutor, instructor, but he is a very highly well-regarded minister and scholar within the community of Coventry, and it just so happens that he married into the Hale family. It does pay to have connections, folks. How many hours do you think it took Nathan and Enoch Hale in arriving to Yale? And I know some of you are wondering, why in the world should that question even matter? Well, I wouldn't say it's maybe the grandest question, but you know, we should be reminded that, you know, in 18th century time, as I mentioned earlier, if you got from point A to point B without any problems in one day and you did 20 miles, that's um, that's pretty impressive. But in terms of overall hours that it took Nathan and his brother Enoch in getting to Yale, how about 48 hours? Of course, one would say, oh, well, that would have been a two-day journey. I highly doubt, folks, that they would have spent 24 hours, a full set of 24 hours, getting from point A to point B. That's just not possible. But yes, it took them 48 hours to get there. And we should be reminded that their journey um, was not one that um, had them on the interstates or uh, U.S. routes like 301 or U.S. 1. I know I'm sounding a little uh, crazy for saying that, but, you know, we should be reminded, folks, that, you know, interstates didn't exist back then. Um, you, like, you know, other secondary roads didn't exist. I mean, you may have had a road that was uh, a dirt road, but it may have been the closest thing you had to a um, United States um, national uh, highway, like, say, US-1 or 301, or in the case of an interstate, like 95, so, um, believe it or not, folks, um, it is fair to say that obviously the campus of Yale, like any other uh, collegiate institution of higher learning, has changed over the years in terms of, um, in terms of uh, buildings being built, in terms of its layout, uh, whatever uh, appearance we may have seen from a particular collegiate institution 30 years ago obviously is not the same that we would see uh, today. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but what I was really uh, blown away by when I read this uh, story, or this book I should say, is that the Yale campus in the time of uh, Nathan Hale's day was just a short walk from the Atlantic Ocean. 
Can you believe that? I mean, I, I just can't imagine arriving to Yale and all of a sudden I've got the um, Atlantic Ocean just a short walk, uh, just a short um, sight away. I'd say that was revolutionary for its time. And I'm sure some of you are wondering, um, how did um, Nathan Hale's father um, obtain the money, you know, for both, for two um, sons to go off to college? You know, it was just, it would have been expected maybe for one, but to have two to go off at one time, that was, um, that was a big deal. So it turns out that Richard Hale um, used bonds in securing his son's college um, tuition given that the that tuition itself folks was 12 shillings per year for each boy i don't know what that uh, would be the equivalent to in modern day money but 12 shillings per year that was a lot and if you had that kind of money it said a lot about you in terms of uh, connections and what you could do in terms of um benefit in terms of helping uh benefit um your children if you uh, get where i'm uh, coming from so um, it's fair to say that Nathan and Enoch Hale um, are going to um, have some, um, they won't be shorthanded for tutors. There are some very uh, noteworthy tutors at Yale College. They ranged from John Trumbull, whom was a painter and son of future Connecticut Governor Jonathan Trumbull Sr., then there was a fellow named Dr. Nathan Strong, whom was a relative on uh, their mother's side. Hey, it never hurts to have connections big and small. And they do pay off. And I'm sure some of you are wondering, in 18th century time, what exactly would a day's study uh, be like? I mean, there's probably no such thing as getting the, the choice to choose what time you want your first class in the morning. Uh, believe me, that doesn't exist in the 18th century. But what I did find out is that a day's studies comprised of classes in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and on Mondays, students were required to write up summaries from sermons preached the previous day before on Sunday. Well, there's a reason why you went to church, folks, back then. You you went you didn't go there just to say, oh, I went to church. Well, I mean, you... You were required to listen to what the minister had to say. You were required to listen to the sermon and understand the importance of the sermon and basically write up a summary on on how you were um, impacted by the sermon and along with understanding its relevance, not just so much to you, but perhaps for the greater society. Now, whom did uh, Richard Hale marry in 1744? He married 17-year-old Elizabeth Strong, who came from a very well-to-do family. Her father was Captain Joseph Strong, and her father was also a justice of the peace. He was a lead townsman and treasurer. I tell you, it's one thing to hold one title, but to have multiple titles, that says a lot too. And there again, those connections will um, benefit uh, husband and wife, not just short-term, but long-term. So Coventry, uh, yes, is the home to where Nathan Hale was born. Um, it was incorporated as a town in May of 1712. I, I thought that was, you know, just interesting because it's always easy to assume that when a village or a, a town is established that it's always been a town. But we do have to be reminded that sometimes um, 
settlements just don't become towns overnight. They probably have to reach a certain population in order to actually qualify as a town. So uh, Nathan Hale uh, was born in 1755. And I'll mention that again here uh, momentarily. But uh, yes, he was born in 1755. He was the great-grandson of Reverend John Hale, whom served as a Puritan pastor to the people of Beverly, Massachusetts. Now, I know most of you know uh, what the, whom the Puritans were, but I'm sure some of you may not, and that's okay. I can um, help distinguish uh, the difference between Puritans and Pilgrims, because I remember as a youngster learning about how the Pilgrims came over to uh, Massachusetts and what we know as Plymouth Rock. Uh, the Pilgrims don't want to have anything to do with the Church of England. They want total separation from church and state, they don't want the church telling the state how to govern, and they certainly don't want the state uh, relying on the church for advice on what the, they need to do in terms of, um, in terms of say, um, coming up with better governing strategies on how to govern the greater public. So the pilgrims want complete separation. The Puritans, on the other hand, want to modify the Church of England from within. They don't want total separation. They do want to adhere to um, many uh, principles of the Church of England, but they are willing to make a few modifications so that there isn't, um, how do you call it, so that there's not complete dysfunction. In other words, for the Puritans, church and state needs to uh, remain intact. So yes, uh, Nathan Hale's great, uh, he is the great-grandson of Reverend John Hale, whom served as a Puritan pastor to the people of Beverly, Massachusetts. It just so happens that um, Nathan Hale's great-grandfather and John Hale was deeply involved in the Salem witchcraft trials of 1692. I can't imagine having been alive in uh, during that time, but we also do have tendencies to forget that, um, that other people um, from other neighboring towns sadly lost their lives due to being falsely accused. But it just so happens that a great many of people lost their lives in Salem, at least 20. I also learned uh, some time back that um, famous um, New England poet Nathaniel Hawthorne, it just so happens, folks, that that was not his real last name. His great-grandfather, um, his name, I don't know his, first, his uh, first name, but his last name was Haythorne, and he was the judge that actually oversaw or presided over many of the uh, witchcraft trial hearings in Salem, Massachusetts, and was ultimately responsible for sending many people to their to the gallows where they ultimately died, falsely accused, all in the name of being a witch. Nathaniel Hawthorne was so embarrassed by what his great-grandfather had done that he added a W to his last name. So he went from Haythorn to Hawthorne. He didn't want to be associated with all of the um, injustice that had occurred well before his arrival into the world. So uh, whenever you hear of Nathaniel Hawthorne, be uh, reminded of the fact that he does have um, ancestors whom uh, were involved in the uh, Salem witchcraft trials for the wrong reasons. Now, Elizabeth Strong, uh, Nathan's mom, she is a fifth-generation Strong born in Coventry around 1727. Elizabeth is no stranger to Yale. 
given how many male relatives in her family had attended the college. The Strongs and the Hales were joined in marriage at or around the start of the 18th century. The Strong family, based upon their name, brought authority throughout all of New England. They were, uh, as a matter of fact, they were the first Puritans to settle outside of Boston. <clears throat> so when you think of uh, towns outside of Boston, um, think of like Beverly to the north, uh, Salem to the north, Marblehead and Gloucester all to the north. I also think of town, other towns outside of Massachusetts like Worcester being 50 miles away. Uh, I don't know if any of the um, family would have settled that far out west, but I'm uh, just giving you some examples of some um, towns and villages that are uh, outside of uh, Boston. Elizabeth and Richard Hale ended up settling on 240 acres. That's a pretty uh, reasonable size. I mean, they may not be landed gentry, but that would be very good for, uh, say, perhaps upper middle class um, family status ranking. South Coventry is where they would start their family. They would go on to have 12 children, folks, nine sons and three daughters. That's a lot of mouths to feed, but, you know, we've got to be remindful of the fact that in 18th century, folks, it was very common for families to have 12 children or more because not every child made it to adulthood. So if you had 12 children, you would have hoped at best that maybe six would have made it to adulthood, perhaps more, but you would have hoped that at best six would have survived uh, to adulthood. And it was a very common practice back then that after your child was born, that he or she was uh, baptized just days after their birth because uh, husband and wife weren't 100% sure if their son or daughter would live to their first birthday. So they wanted to be able to make sure that their child was recognized, but recognized in a formal manner, knowing that they were able to be um, a member of the church at a very, very early uh, stage in their life. Large portion of the Hale Farm is dedicated, um, yes, believe it or not, they're on a farm, like most people were at the time. Large portion of the Hale Farm is dedicated to growing um, feed corn and grain for Richard Hale's cattle business. Well, believe it or not, folks, you know, it's one thing for a family to have a farm and to grow food for themselves, but we do have to be reminded of the fact that, that they're, even in colonial times, you know, it is a business. It is a business uh, that um, necessitates livelihood, not just for your family, but perhaps uh, money that you can uh, generate that whatever extra money you can generate will help not only you and your spouse, but that of your children as well, uh, short and long term. One of the key commodities for the Hale Farm happened to be flax. Flax was a commodity that... Um, it was used for a variety of things, but in, in the case for the Hales, it was uh, designed for making cloth. Why cloth? Well, during the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War, colonial New England, all of colonial New England, I should say, abided by a law requiring farmers to retain specific amounts of acreage for flax production. Why so? Well... How about um, how about going about uh, properly assisting and clothing the army? 
And who are we talking about in terms of the army? The British. Because remember, folks, in 1755 and just after, you know, 1756 to 1763, we are still considered, not only are we still considered subjects to the crown, but we still have every reason to believe and assume that, hey, we will continue to be loyal subjects to the crown. But little do we know that after the war's end, just how drastically things will change, and they won't change for the better. But it, but during the uh, Seven Years' War, colonial New England, yes, did abide by a law mandating uh, farmers to retain specific amounts of their acreage solely for flax production in order to help properly clothe the army, being that of his, uh, being that of, um, we should be reminded, folks, that um, prior to 1760, who is king of England? George II, whom is George, whose grandson will take over in 1760, being George III, after uh, grandfather George dies. So we should be reminded of the fact that when the French and Indian War, a.k.a. Seven Years' War, broke out, George II was um, king of England. But in the final years of the French and Indian War, George III took over or had presided over the war. June 6, 1755 was the official date of Nathan Hale's birth. So he's technically, he is born right before the eye of the storm. Now, in the late 1760s, in the post-French and Indian War era, most notably 1767, that was the beginning of some sad tragedies for the Hale family. Just before Nathan turned 12, his youngest uh, sibling, uh, Susanna, being the family's 12th child, died a few weeks after being born. But on April 27th of 1767, Nathan Hale's mother, Elizabeth, died from childbirth complications. Nathan is very distraught over his mother's passing. If I was in his shoes, I would be the same way too. You know, Nathan had a very good relationship with both of his parents, but losing a parent, you know, just like in today's time, it is it is a loss, but especially at a very young age. So we do have to be reminded, folks, that um, children um, not only witnessed siblings die young, but they also witnessed losing a parent at a very young age, and sadly, in some in, in a lot of instances, losing both parents at a young age. So we just, we can't take any of this for granted and realize that, oh, everybody lived a nice life back then. No, they didn't. Uh, we we, uh, we cannot um, make any assumptions whatsoever. Besides her, besides her husband surviving her, how many small children did Elizabeth Hale leave behind? Eight. She left eight young children behind. And this also includes a farm to run. Elizabeth, um, and believe it or not, folks, Nathan Hale has an older sister named Elizabeth. And we have to be reminded of the fact that it was very common, even in colonial times, for a husband and wife to name um, their son or daughter after their own um, after their own selves because they want to be able to carry that family name legacy alive for future generations to come. So Elizabeth, Nathan's older sister, was ha handled several of her late mother's duties, 
which was great, but the family needs something that um, is going to be better uh, for long-term purposes. Given that Richard Hale is a widower, he does need a woman to run the home. And, and I'm not trying to sound sexist, folks. I, I'm not. Yes, there are things that Richard Hale and, and really any man could do at that time, but there are all but there are certain things specifically designed for a woman to do that a man may not be equipped to uh, to handle. So what is that going to mean, folks? At some point down the road, he will need to uh, consider remarrying. And I found this to be interesting that um, in terms of the total number of months in colonial New England where one mourned the loss of a spouse was two months. So yes, um, <clears throat> you know, two months really was about the average amount of time to uh, deal with the grieving, the sorrow, the suffering, and now you have to think to yourself, okay, how do we go about moving on with life? Where, do, How do we pick up the pieces? Are we going to sit around here and mope, or are we going to do something about it? Well, interesting enough for Richard Hale, the process took a little longer. It actually took two years for him to be able to get over the loss. But the good news is that on June 13, 1769, one week after Nathan's 14th birthday, Richard Hale remarried. And believe it or not, folks, um, I was blown away at the name of his wife, of his new wife. It just so happened that his new wife was Abigail Adams. But it's not the famous Abigail Adams that we know whom was married to uh, John Adams. But if you want to talk about even more uh, perplexing and crazy, it just so happens that Abigail Adams, uh, Richard's new wife, was the widow of Captain Samuel Adams. Of course, when I think of Samuel Adams, I think of uh, revolutionary Samuel Adams, who was cousins with John Adams. Well, it just so happens that when Captain Samuel Adams, um, he was the, um, when he passed away, um, obviously, um, Abigail um, not only was a widow, but she had uh, two daughters from the marriage. So it just so happens, folks, that yes, it's it's unfortunate that these things happen, but it's also a blessing to be able to bring two families together, knowing that that the um, widow and the widower have yes, they have endured hardship, seeing their loved their previous loved one pass away, but now have a chance to um, now have a chance to um, to make something not only for themselves but as a couple. And be able to set good examples, not only for their own children, but for the stepchildren as well. What did the Hale family sell before and during the American Revolution? I know this might sound odd for me to say, but I just thought it was interesting. They uh, sold beef cattle. And, okay, if you're selling beef cattle, you've got to take it to a port. And it's got to be somewhere that's not too terribly far away. They uh, took the cattle to uh, Norwich, which is a port town about 23 miles southeast of Coventry, where the cattle got boarded by riverboat and eventually sent to the West Indies in England. Well, you know, it's got to go somewhere, but, you know, it's one thing to sell your cattle and to um, send it somewhere where people are going to not just so much benefit from it, but, you know, will depend on it for a source of um, food. But for Richard Hale and others, 
do you think that they are being really uh, looked after 100%? I don't think they are. I think they are actually being impacted negatively by Parliament. How so? Well, Parliament, as we know, uh, during the late 1760s—mid to late 1760s—enacted several uh, tax measures that the colonists found to be very um, what we would think of in today's time as unconstitutional, but back then very unfair because the colonists had no voice 3,000 miles across the ocean. So Parliament was making all these laws uh, from the infamous Stamp Act to the Townshend duties. But they were doing so without the colonists' consent. Yes, Parliament repealed that uh, infamous Stamp Act in seventeen in the spring of 1766. Yes, they repealed the glass, the paint, the lead, and the paper from the Townshend duties. If, if there was one thing they didn't repeal, it was the tea, which of course drove Bostonians nuts. Well, for Richard Hale, he is impacted negatively by the parliamentary tax measures in this case, that include exportation to England of goods made and farmed in the colonies. Well, you know, it does take a lot of um, time and effort to produce goods, only to have to ship them, say, 3,000 miles across the ocean or south down to um, the West Indies and not um, feel valued and getting little back in return or nothing. So... Yes, for Richard Hale, he's got to wonder, okay, why should I be forced against my own will to export my goods when I don't have a voice? Why should I be forced to export my goods when I don't even get when I don't even have consent to oppose what parliament is doing? So he's not the only one that's um concerned about this. If I was in his shoes, I'd feel the same way too. But but we can now see where um, seeds of discourse are starting to feel impacted well beyond the outskirts of Boston within other uh, colonies in New England. Was it common by 1769 in colonial New England society for the average household to send one child on to college? Uh, believe it or not, folks, not every household had the financial means to send their eldest-born sons off to college, and it's true. Um, <clears throat> yes, you might be of middle class, but that doesn't automatically mean you might be able to send your co your oldest-born son off to college. For uh, Richard Hale, he just happened to be a very unique person at a unique time. Um, he just, ha as, as I said, he happened to be a very unique person at a unique time. He was able to send three sons off to college. I mean, oftentimes in this day and age, you hear a family sending two and three children off in college at one time, but that was just totally unheard of in the 18th century. But I think it's fair to say if it happened, it was in a very, very small elite percentage, probably at least in the elite one to two percent at best. And yet the Hales, I mean, yes, Richard Hale with his first wife, Elizabeth, yes, he married into a well-to-do family. And those connections could have uh, been very significant and down the road for why um, Nathan and Enoch and another uh, brother were able to go off to college. Richard envisioned that, uh, son, uh, that his son Nathan would follow his old man's uh, footsteps by going into what field? Ministry. 
Yes, folks, that, ha that is uh, the case that Richard Hale was a minister. Well, and we do have to be reminded that, um, that if you went to Harvard or you went to Yale and w or William and Mary, because they, they are the three oldest collegiate institutions, that um, it was expected to go into divinity because those schools were designed uh, for divinity purposes. Uh, church and state are very strong. Uh, church and state are not to be questioned. Uh, they are to um, be adhered to. If you do have an issue, you need to take it up with the parishioner rather than go uh, voice your um, opposition in town to where you could be charged with disturbing the peace. So um, it turns out, folks, that Nathan Hale himself was persuaded by one of his uncles into entering education with the objective in becoming a tutor and a schoolmaster. Richard is okay with this. I mean, he wants his son to be happy, but he still instilled a sense of God's presence to Nathan. In other words, don't forget where you came from and be reminded of the fact that, okay, if you want to go somewhere else in terms of profession, just um, remember that um, God is with you all the time through the best of times and through the most challenging of times. Uh, would young Nathan Hale become a successful contributor at Yale from a cultural perspective? Yes. During his time at Yale, he progressed into an individual whom showed accurate and deep understandings regarding um, peers around him, including situations impacting their physical and emotional well-being. So it's fair to say that Nathan Hale is a very compassionate individual. You know, he's he doesn't strike me as the type who would go around with the I, me, myself mentality. No, I want what's best for my friends, just like they would want what's best for me. But if there is a problem, you know, we don't need to know everything, but we should at least um, show enough uh, concern and empathy that, okay, if there is an issue, you know, we should have some understanding of knowing what they're going through. While at Yale, Nathan Hale also became a very outspoken he became very outspoken, meaning that he learned the practice of giving his opinions openly and honestly, even if there were others around him who didn't always agree on everything. So yes, it's one thing to have an opinion on something, but of course we have to be reminded that it doesn't automatically mean that everybody else is going to agree with you. They might agree with you on, certain, on some aspects or elements, but not everything. So Nathan Hale is also learning at this time in his life where, yes, it's one thing to have an opinion on something, but he's also having to learn about the importance of being open-minded. November 20th, 1770, Nathan becomes uh, indoctrinated into a secret uh, fraternity. And of course, when I think of secret fraternities at Yale, there's always one that comes to my mind. It, it's uh, Skull and Bones. But it just so happens that uh, Skull and Bones um, was not around when Nathan Hale was a student at Yale. He uh, was indoctrinated into a secret fraternity known as Linonia, L-I-N-O-N-I-A. It was a literary and debating society that got established 17 years earlier, come 1753, two years before he was born. What topics did those... Um, tapped to join Lenonia discuss within the organization. Well, they discussed a lot of uh, unique subjects for their time, folks, and I will just tell you that some of the subjects they talked about, yes, were sensitive for their time, 
but they did but people then had some very good open discussions about them and we can't fault them for it so the subjects ranged from astronomy literature women's rights remember folks you know men are the only ones that can hold public office um, go to college so i'm sure that we have some of these young boys wondering hey will we will we be alive one day to see women uh, enter um, high institutions of learning like college and believe it or not slavery was talked about as well so we do have to give credit to these young men for having discussions on um on yes subjects that were perhaps sensitive for their time but could not be overlooked or ignored just to name some of the various key social and academic issues of the time yale scholars within linonia worked tirelessly Nathan held the office of chancellor, being that of president. He became the primary member of Lenonia, where he oversaw the selection of book expansion for the library. Rather than banning books, he was all about expanding the book, uh, the library. Through Lenonia, uh, young Nathan went about developing commitment to education as a career, but included debating politics and well-known issues of his day where over time he began to see positive results impacting what could become an eventual democratic system of governing where people's voices got heard. Nathan Hale, is very, during his time at Yale, was very well respected by everyone else. Never made an enemy. Within Lenonia, well, he was well respected by everyone else, including those from within Lenonia. He became close friends with a non-Linonia fellow, a Yale classmate named Benjamin Talmadge, whom, like Nathan, would join the Continental Army, but Benjamin uh, Talmadge did so in uh, 1776. It just so happens, folks, that Benjamin uh, Talmadge and Nathan Hale are only a year apart from each other. He was born in 1754 and uh, hailed from uh, Long Island were athletics you know um we do have to be reminded of the fact fact folks that um athletics did exist in the time that our uh, forefathers were alive those who went on to college we just probably didn't have um a vast selection of sports that that we know of today um but athletics did exist so Yes, were athletics at Yale designed to help curtail Yale scholars from a stressful seven-day study week? Yes, folks, they had a seven-day week of studying. Yes, there may have been the weekend, but it didn't mean you could just go and uh, party like there was no tomorrow. So the answer is yes. Nathan himself um, did um, participate in athletics, most notably wrestling, which thus allowed him to show off his superior degree of masculinity in the sport, given his uh, size appearance, had stood out. Um, from what I had read, his, he was about almost six feet tall, which was very unheard of in that time. I know that um, from what I had learned, uh, based upon the uh, first group of uh, settlers that came to Jamestown at the start of the uh, 17th century, the average height was probably about between five feet and less than six feet let's put it that way but for someone to have been six feet tall or just over six feet in 18th century time was very unheard of 
uh, Jared Sparks, uh, I didn't know anything about this guy until reading the book. He was a friend of Nathan Hale's at Yale. He saw firsthand how, um, and none of this is in quotes, but um, but based upon what I had read, he um, he observed Nathan Hale quite a bit, and all for the right reasons. He saw firsthand how young Nathan Hale acquired many unique God-given talents during his time at Yale. But never once did Jared Sparks ever recall Nathan squandering those talents. In other words, Nathan made the most of every talent he acquired. <clears throat> he went as far as serving the needs of fellow classmen, even if it wasn't asked to do so by sources above, like, say, a professor from above or a tutor above, or even from a, a peer below. Nathan knew how to reach out to people. Nathan didn't intimidate anyone. He was that caring of an individual. So it just goes to show you that sometimes we don't always have to be asked by those from above or below to help out a fellow um, friend or a companion or just someone whom we care about in a time of need. Sometimes we just have to be the ones to take that initiative right away and uh, step up to the plate when it matters most. Uh, given how um, outgoing Nathan Hale himself was, did he have tendencies to fall to peer pressure's temptations? You know, as much as we all would like to believe that, you know, the All-American fellow, the All-American student, I should say, couldn't do anything wrong on the side, well, none of us are perfect. We have our flaws but it's up to us to make sure that the flaws don't get the better of us to the point where um, it could jeopardize our relationships with those whom you know care about us. So it does turn out, folks, that Nathan Hale did have tendencies to fall to peer pressure's temptations. He loved various card games, a.k.a. Uh, card playing, probably some gambling. He also enjoyed drinking. And he also enjoyed uh, breaking windows. Ooh, breaking windows? Um, that's not uh, an easy fix. If you broke a window, I'm sure in his time he would have been asked to have uh, paid a fine. From what I read, folks, he and his brother uh, Enoch did break a window. The father sent them some money, but of course little did the dad know that that money was going towards uh, repairing a window. I think Nathan probably learned his lesson after the first go-round because I, from what I read in the book, it never happened again during his time at Yale. Of course, they didn't have telephones, obviously, back then to call up the parents and say, uh, do you want to know what your son did today at school? No. I think after your first uh, incident, that was enough of a uh, shake-up to be reminded of the fact that, hey, if I really screw up bad again the second go-round, I might not be here anymore. So, yes, Nathan Hale also enjoyed uh, chasing young single ladies around town. Innocence, to say the least. Richard Hale knew his son's behavioral traits very well, and when he wrote to both Enoch and Nathan, as they entered into their second full year at Yale, both boys were reminded that should they need wisdom to reference Bible verses, including attending church as a means of avoiding anything sinful like card playing. So, you know, yes, it's one thing to go to church, learn a sermon, but it's also important to learn uh, the lessons from the sermon that might prevent you from making similar mistakes again, such as breaking a window, 
or um, engaging in um, excessive drinking or perhaps uh, card playing because, you know, people think in today's time, you know, gambling is a problem. Only in modern times, oh, believe me, folks, even in colonial days, from what I've read and been told, gambling was a serious problem in the 18th century. The only problem is that back then you didn't have uh, programs like Gamblers Anonymous uh, to go to to um, to uh, to modify your situation to where you could get the help and basically become um, immune uh, from uh, from making uh, similar mistakes um, in the future. So, um, yes, uh, Nathan himself was not the type to question his dad's guidance and wisdom, which is a good thing. I mean, after all, his dad is a minister. I think that would be the last thing he'd want to do is question uh, what a minister tells you, especially if it's your own father. Nathan, and this is largely attributed to the fact that uh, he had no past issues regarding taking comfort and joy in the Bible itself. Well, that speaks volumes. However, during these uh, trying, uh, you know, even when Nathan and his brother are at Yale, money is tight at the Hale home. But yet Richard still managed to scrap eight pounds in cash with the intent that Nathan and Enoch would survive without new clothes until after graduation. Yes, these boys are at Yale, but that doesn't mean that they may be able to get everything that everything there is that they want when they want to. So they are having to be reminded that um, while, yes, times may not be, time, it's, circumstances themselves may not be necessarily 100% bad, sacrifices are having to be made on a smaller level, and that is you're going to have to make do with what you have until uh, later on down the road. So if I was in Nathan Hale's shoes, I would have to be very thankful for the fact that I do have clothes and that I have um, decent enough clothes to where um, I can get by until um, much later on down the road. Well, that covers uh, everything for this uh, podcast episode uh, segment. And and again, I'm really glad to be back on the air with you guys. I've missed you all a lot. Uh, But I also hope to be back on the air again before uh, Christmas Day. And when I am on the air again next, we will uh, learn about um, where Nathan goes um, after Yale, including um, meeting with uh, family outside of Connecticut, uh, someone in his family whom whom can give him uh, wisdom on where to go. Uh, We will also learn a little bit more about um, Benjamin Talmadge as well just some of the many things that we will be learning about when I'm on the air again next time. But thank you again, and uh, thank you for being such great listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be, but you all have uh, helped make this uh, possible and continue to get the word out to others whom would like to learn more about what I've been doing since June of 2020 because, um, you know, I'm not again, I'm not trying to be political, folks, but, you know, it's up to us, not only in the present, but to be able to uh, help future generations understand that they need to learn about their history. Even if it's not the prettiest at times, we still have to learn about it so that certain mistakes don't get made again, but also have an understanding that generations before us lived through some very challenging and uh, turbulent times and that... Um, They dealt with unpleasant situations as best as they could, but they were not immune from it. Take care and have a great rest of your day.